0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 78 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host Connor Johnen, and I will not be joined by my co-hosts, David Howe and Carlton Gover. So this episode is going to be a little different than normal without David and Carlton participating. I continue our conversation with Dr. Brian Schroeder, who was originally on episode 15. Dr. Schroeder told us about his roots in Wyoming archaeology and also an insane story about a mummy. If you haven't listened to episode 15, I highly recommend it. We did not get to discuss other avenues of Dr. Schroeder's research at the Center for Big Bend Studies at Solrath State University, and this episode picks up there. And just so a heads up, this episode was recorded in the summer of 2020. Enjoy. So, Dr. Schroeder, uh, how are you doing on this lovely May Day?
1: I'm doing, well, wow, it's incredibly warm here, and just ready to chat.
0: So you you still have field work that's ongoing because you're funded through this field season, right?
1: We have kind of a different situation than I think a lot of people do since we have so much private land. We don't really have and the weather's always hot. We don't really have seasons to go do field work so we can kind of just go whenever we want and we have kind of open access to a couple of these large ranches and we've been going out and recording some sites that we've known about but just haven't had time to do anything with during quarantine. And they're they're pretty involved sites. So they've been kind of people have known about them for a long time, but they've been kind of neglected because they're they're pretty complex Pueblo type sites. They have architecture on them and stuff. So they kinda of outliers down here. So they've just people, yeah, like I said, people have known about them but just haven't gone Form. So we excavated at one of them. We just did a little bit of testing because there was some bone that was eroding out that I thought might be bison bone. And so we went and got that and it actually turned out to be a horse. Still neat, uh, but Whoa. not bison. Uh, and it's on a really cool, really late village period site. There's dog and post molds and structures there but nobody's ever excavated the site and it's huge. There's an incredibly rich assortment of pottery and there's indigenous metalworking. We found a bronze metal point this lot la- over this break. So it's a really late period site. It's got horse. looks like they were butchering horses. So
0: interesting. Pretty neat.
1: Yeah. yeah. The other one was uh, kind of the same thing, but earlier it's got a, uh, Coronado Mogollon ceramics on it. It's uh, this real neat black and red ware, and there was a lot of it there. And we just don't find, we find a little bit of painted pottery off the Rio Grande, but not that much. And this one, this site had a ton of pottery on it. So uh, the landowners known about it for a while. So we went out and recorded it. It's really cool. It was so freaking hot though. Oh Yeah. (laughs) The, the dog brought our dogs out and the dogs went and just laid in the disgusting backwater of the Rio Grande. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awful. And it's, you're not even in like the, the height of your, your one season hotness, right? So you're right. early. In no, <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: yeah. We're not even in the hot part yet.
0: No, <laughs> The hot part of the hot season. Nope. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it's, we're in, we're in the shoulder hot
0: season. (laughs) (laughs) So have you excavated the kind of sites with these Pueblo architectural sites before? Because, you know, it's interesting. We, Alpine just did a project down in Durango on this last year and to excavate these sites, it's a whole nother kind of beast in and of itself, kind of the way you approach that.
1: Uh, No, I I haven't. And actually, nobody really has. I mean, there's been a little bit of work, but there's a series of kind of, it's an archaeological district, and there's a lot of debate whether it's related to the Hornadomuian groups up in kind of the El Paso area, or if it's like Pacame outlier groups. There was a lot of work in the 40s by first pioneering archaeologist down in this part of West Texas, J. Charles Kelly. And he did a lot. And then he went further down into Mexico and did it even more. And yeah, nobody's really gone out and done anything with them. And they're freaking cool. I mean, coming from a hunter gatherer background, they're like decidedly complex sites. And I get a little bit intimidated by just the amount of stuff. Oh yeah. And, it's kind of hard to know where to start. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what your perception of them is, but it's like, like one of the things is uh, the amount of pottery is just absolutely insane. And it's neat, but you kind of get to a point where it's like, man, what do you do with all this pottery? So just making sure you have like really good collection and sample strategies. But no, we haven't excavated any. That's kind of as I transitioned into the director at the center that's one of the things we're going to focus on is re-engaging uh excavations at these sites to see what's there because they're in pretty bad shape too so i oh, no. i will excavate one
0: yeah yeah i mean it was just they're weird. all on like, private uh, land
1: too so they're
0: uh yeah i was, just, I was gonna say um it's kind of weird it's just when you excavate them i've never you know you it's, it's, it's this wild process of digging down to where you get to the architectural layers and then you build grids off of that, but these grids are never like straight square one by ones or whatever, because most of these things are circular. So then it's like this fact-finding mission to, uh-huh. you know, find these all these architecture stuff. And I was, you know, I was like you. I was extremely intimidated and I wasn't even like actively working in there. It's just like how do you approach something so complex and as you mentioned with as much artifacts that come out of these things it's it's insane.
1: And you get super deep, super quick and, <laughs> and, oh, and what do you do with yeah, there's a lot of different complexity there but that's kind of fun I think to kind of step
0: outside the boundary. Well, you don't want to dig like sterile one by ones in western Wyoming? Come on.
1: Um, uh, you know, I do, I did that, <laughs> <laughs> but now uh, I want to dig penthouses, uh, when it's 105 degrees on the Rio Grande
0: <laughs> and, and dogs are actually melting into the, the landscape around you
1: <laughs> melting into the skunky Rio backwater of the Rio Grande.
0: <laughs> do you have any kind of sort of updates on. Kind of the stuff we talked about in episode 15 about like the human remains? Or is that still in kind of the same sort of limbo as it was before?
1: Well, we finished a document and we put it into press and we got soundly rejected by the journal, which I will remain nameless. Mm-hmm. And we resubmitted to a different journal and we resubmitted in the end of March. I think that was the exact worst time to submit any paper to publication. And, and we haven't heard anything. So haven't heard anything else as far as like getting it out into the world. But as far as results, no, I haven't really chased
0: anything super new since I spoke with you last time. It's been interesting because I know you well enough to know that you you know started out in archaeology, you know, eastern wyoming doing crm kind of stuff and working in an academic context as well. But it seems like you have got yourself in into a ton of different types of research, you know, as a as a part of working for the Center for Big Bend Studies. Are you enjoying that?
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, I have become much more a generalist lately. And that's sort of by design, I got done with my dissertation and felt I don't think I really felt burned out, but I just felt like I would know more than I did. I sort of felt like you go through this arc as a career where you're undergrad, I felt like I was brilliant and then masters that started to shake and then PhD. I didn't feel smarter. I actually felt like I knew way less. So I didn't really feel like I specialized in anything. So But I feel like I had a lot of base knowledge and a lot of stuff. So I kind of went forward with that. And and (laughs) I would say more than anything, my trajectory forward is about collaboration because I know that like where I am and now I'm, I mean, you know, I'm sure you, there's the same thing in Wyoming and Colorado. I know there is, and I'm sure you experience that as well. There's a series of professionals that have grown up there, and they have kind of a stake to the research there. And mm-hmm. I think in many senses, they kind of know the cultural history really well, and they know the sites and they know the literature. And that's where I am now. I'm the new person coming into a world like that. And rather than I don't, I don't know anything that a lot of people down here that have devoted their lives to it don't know. So more than anything, I've collaborated, and I guess I use what I've learned from getting my doctorate to find maybe the holes that other people have overlooked. So that's sort of how I've become a generalist. I think that the smartest thing that anybody can do is say that you don't know, and my incredible weird eclectic research focus now is because i've said i don't know but i'm going to ask a lot of questions <laughs> and that's gotten me where to i was but i mean at, at my dissertation events my big comment was this dissertation's good but it's too focused on one region and you're going to box yourself into a corner and you're not going to work there in five years and at the that time I was so offended by that. I was absolutely I was I was pissed. I'm like, what do they know? I've worked in Wyoming my entire life. That's where I mm-hmm. research is, that's where I'm going to be, and pretty upset about that. And then, you know, fast forward to now, <laughs> five years later, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm digging village period sites on the border of Mexico. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think if you can stay open enough and kind of know where to ask the right questions, I think that that's really important. I I feel like there needs to be more generalists. So I guess that eclectic nature is kind of what I'd like to see more people do.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it, it probably involves a lot more reading and researching because you have to build that background knowledge in a variety of different subjects. But if you're willing to put in that time, it seems like that can only benefit you. You get to learn so much more and be a more well-rounded archaeologist by doing that.
1: Yeah. It also knows like the dry cave where, you know, most of this, these mummies came out of that we talked about last time. And I mean, I've never really had free access to a site that cool. I mean, this is a site that if it was on public land, it would have huge grates over it and you'd have to like schedule visitation rights. And I mean, hours and you'd be, you know, a ranger would take you down there. I mean, it's a really complex ecosystem and the, the landowner is doing a really good job of taking care of it. But at the same time, we have totally uncontrolled access to it. But you go down to a site like that and you, you know, you know, just as an, a researcher, yeah, I think anybody would know in the, you know, that has research at mind that there is so much more that we can learn from this cave than the archeology. span So I, I, Walked into it the first day kind of thinking, I mean, I'm interested in this like Holocene record of what's happening here. But clearly, there's much, much more going on than that. That's interesting to more people. So really, all of my work uh, at that one site in particular kind of stemmed from making sure I talked to as many specialists in their field as possible and got rejected by some and some came out and helped me. Uh, a lot of people, I
0: think, probably thought, well, who is this crazy person? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got this deep cave. Can you uh, can you help me on this something? <laughs>
1: yeah, I got this really cool cave. We could, we could do a lot on it. Like, mm, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> In this kind of approach, taking this bigger approach, um, is this where you found the ground sloth that you had sent me that paper on and at least talked to me about?
1: Yeah, so the ground sloth... So what happened was I was trying to find, I mean, the cave is incredibly looted. It's got this huge main chamber and it it's just industrial. It looks like people just, I mean, they vacuumed it for at least a hundred years. And so what I wanted to do was preserve the deposits that were left. So I actually made a gear haul line to get a hundred pound cattle mats into the cave And we got them up into the cave and we lined the cave floor with them. So when we walked across it, we didn't mess any of the deposits up. Hmm. And I wanted to get into the back. There's these two back caves or these two back shafts. They go about 30 meters off of the main chamber. They actually go further than that, but then they get really into spider territory. Big Um, habitat, which is not my jam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I get really into some pretty gnarly spiders that uh, made one student just break down into tears. And I was like, can't help you. Sorry. (laughs) There's there's nothing I can do to help you. Uh, That's a bummer for you. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to preserve those deposits, but I also wanted to map it and use ground-based LiDAR, but I wanted to tie it into the front excavations that I was doing. So uh, I put the mats in, I crawled in there, and I was going to set all my datums in concrete because I just thought it's a significant enough site that, you know, we'll come back to that, or somebody will come back to it, and I want them to be able to tie into what I did. And so I set the datums in concrete, and uh, there was a little bit of cave debris there, I didn't think there'd be any deposits there. So I thought, you know, there'd be nothing. So there's like right on the edge of the cave and I brushed it off and I collected it and screened it. But when I was hitting the bottom of it, my rock hammer kind of bounced back. And i was like, well, that's weird. It was really, really just spongy and dense. Like that is not what you expect to find at the bottom of a cave deposit. And I opened it up and took a look at it. And it was just this mat of fiber, like really flat mat of fiber. And I thought, you know, this is great. This will give me, and it was right on top of bedrock. And I was like, this is great. This will give me a date of, you know, how much, how this deposit is filled. So I'll have, you know, at least know how old the back of this cave is and you know, the deposits I'm working in are mm-hmm. and I, I took it out and took a piece of the top and the bottom and dated it and sent it out to direct AMS and I got the dates back and they sent the dates on like a Saturday night. And like, it was really late. It was like 11 o'clock at night out here in Texas. So I guess it was only nine o'clock there, but in, Washington but it was it was kind of that's a weird good. time to receive a radiocarbon date and I saw it and I thought yeah I thought it said I thought it said 1099 and I was like oh man that's a real bummer the the oh, only gosh. you know deposits in that back chamber won't, will be young and yeah will be younger than late archaic so what a bummer and I went down and was kind of doing something else and I was like wait a second did that say ten thousand nine hundred and ninety nine I looked at the dates again and it was ten thousand nine hundred and ninety nine and I thought wait what does that mean? <laughs> what, is, what, what, what does that come out to and what is that calibrated? So I started calibrating dates at like midnight on a Saturday and one was ten thousand ninety nine <laughs> uncalibrated and the other was eleven thousand twenty four and those are I was like wait are those are those cloves? Is that Clovis? And it would be a very early Clovis age date, but it, it it kind of falls in there when you calibrate it. And I so then I started thinking, okay, what is that? What what did I just date? I get this really dense packed fiber mat. So I started asking uh, a lot of the folks that research paleo Indians, like, so I'm, you know, I'm up there at the SAA's. I'm talking about this cl- potential Clovis age deposit in this cave. What are all you guys snickering about in the audience? What do you guys tell me that I'm wrong about that I totally overlooked? And <laughs> they resoundingly said, "We'd ask you why it wasn't sloth poop." Right? Like, huh? Okay. Well, who researched sloth poop? So there is a there is a there's one incred- guy. <laughs> there's an incredible researcher. <laughs> There is one guy, well, there might be more guys, but there is there is a guy that is he's just a tremendous human. He's a fantastic guy. Dr. Jim Mead at the Mammoth Museum in Hot Springs, South Dakota. And I called him up and he said, Yeah, sure, send it. And I sent it to him and he said, Yeah. And it's it looks like sloth poop. There's not enough to make it a definitive ID. And he started explaining to me that it's not a boldness. That you know, sloths usually have kind of like a horse apple. Uh, kind of, it's a little bit more platy than that, but it's it's a horse apple, essentially for our purposes here. And he said, you know, what you have is more of a barnyard situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I immediately knew that I liked it. <laughs> so he said, you know, if you can find a bolus, bolus, tell me, and. Way back in the other shaft, so there's two shafts that go off of this main chamber. There was way back up in there the first time I was in there. There was a piece of poop that looks—I just thought it was donkey shit. I mean, I really, really did. I mean, never mind that you have to crawl on your hands and knees to get back there. But yeah, I, you know, I just didn't think anything of it. And as soon as he said, you know, there should be these, you know, these bolus. they're rounder, and I think, like, oh my god. I know exactly where his one is, so I drove out there and got it, and I sent it to him. And he said, "This this looks right." I'll radiocarbon date it, and he radiocarbon dated and it came out thirty one thousand BP. Oh, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, that pushes it back 30, 000, a little bit. <laughs> thirty one thousand year old. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a late Pleistocene Holocene transition piece, and then there is thirty one thousand year old piece on the surface and that that that's absolutely amazing and you i mean anybody would have walked by you walk right by this and it looks exactly like it looks exactly like you know something you see out in the field it didn't look you know 31 000 years old <laughs> and so he decided to come out and he came out and there's a really good uh local public radio station that I reached out and came out just in case, you know, there was more to it than that. and We went out there and I have to tell you, this expedition was like one of the most amazing expeditions ever. I never talked to Dr. Mead on the phone ever. And I got random sporadic emails about potentially coming out. And then he literally texted me from the gas station and said, Hey, I'm in Marfa, the next town over. Do you want to meet and go down there? Like, wait, you drove from South Dakota.
0: <laughs> that's that's not a small so feat.
1: <laughs> we met up with his. Yeah, we drew, met up with his reporter and the reporter was sleeping in a tent in some of his friend's house in, in town. He wasn't in the house. He was in a tent. <laughs> and he had some beer and some peanut butter. And Mead had beef, turkey, and I think peanut butter, and a bottle of wine. And th- these guys were ready to go down and do a sloth dung expedition on the border of Mexico. <laughs> 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 you know, we could buy food. There are grocery stores, and we could do this in touch more civilized
0: <laughs> it's west texas is basically like the the old west you know
1: <laughs> yeah i guess so deep turkey peanut butter and your dreams <laughs> just a just a research an interest in research so we all went down there and uh, we dug a we dug a, actually dug a small trench where i found the thirteen thousand year old dung And somehow I placed the the datum on the only remnant of sloth dung, 13,000 year old sloth dung in there. Like somehow I perfectly hit the only piece to set this off. And just by placing a datum. And where we found the 31,000 year old stuff, we went there and we found uh, Jim found tons. I mean, there's so much sloth shit there. And it's 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 uh it's everywhere. Huh. So I really just found what had been kicked up to the surface. And the pack rat midden is also it's so what he thinks is it's probably a twenty nine thousand year old pack rat midden that has thirty one thousand year old
0: sloth dung in it.
1: Wow. And that wasn't looted.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so you found the the dung and then you um subsequently did research on this because you know we can use dung either human or or non-human to kind of understand diet maybe environment there's a lot of other stuff you can study what kind of information did you learn about this
1: so it's it's kind of interesting there's not very many uh, sloth dung caves or shelters in north america i think there's like 12 total so in and of itself you're getting this dietary information on these you know, late Pleistocene megafauna that you don't get anywhere else. So he, he wanted to do a whole bunch of stuff. He wanted to do DNA on, on the plant diet and stuff, but none of it preserved. So what we did is lists to kind of reconstruct the Chihuahuan Desert. And that's been kind of a big debate down here is when some of the diagnostic plants of the Chihuahuan Desert kind of took root here, I guess, if I can use that. <laughs> and <laughs> he was really looking for that. And I, I got to admit, that's that's totally his research. I was much more interested in that being Clovis-aged fiber bed. But that being said, you also do get a construction of the end of the Pleistocene as far as what environment humans would be kind of moving into. So... From that standpoint, is really interesting. And what he found is that it was a pinion juniper upland that this the 31,000-year-old sloth was living in. And that plant community kind of receded a little bit and started getting some more of the diagnostic features of the Chihuahuan Desert by about 13,000 years. And apparently, we have one of the only records of creosote bush moving in at that time period and there's been a lot of pack rat work down here and it hasn't found creosote that early so interesting i think we have to do more he doesn't think that's a contaminant yeah he doesn't think that's a contaminant so that that might mean you know clovis aged folks would have been moving into a landscape at least in the chihuahuan desert that are early paleo indians would have been moving into a landscape that Looked fairly similar to what it does now pretty xeric and Mm. that has implications we don't have very many early paleo indian sites in this area Uh, we haven't really done a big focused look on them but that 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 might explain why they're not here because yeah i don't know so
0: interesting and and i have to clarify so um this isn't the the giant ground sloth that people are talking about right that, that is very famous for, you know, being big.
1: Yeah, so when I asked Dr. Mead about it, I, uh, he told me it was the very small, uh, it was the smallest of the ground, North American ground sloths. There's three different genus. This one is the Shasta ground sloth. So this one is about the size of, as he put it, a small steer, which I think to us that don't study megafauna is a pretty big sloth.
0: So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think she said that it's, uh, you know, 750 pounds on average. So that that that's a pretty big, it's a pretty big ground critter.
0: Yeah, no joke. No joke. So no, that's super interesting, man. Like I, that's wild that you're able to do that collaboration kind of stuff coming from an archeological base to kind of ask these questions and do this research, you know, very much is like, like you said, it's uh, like, I, what is this? How old is this? You know, it it, it brings you to some interesting places.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, it started with a very archeologically focused question. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there might've been researchers that would have put it down, but to me, it was like, well, that's cool. (laughs) How many ground slots, how many caves of ground sloth poop in them are there are there in North America? And <laughs> that seems worthwhile. So <laughs> absolutely. So you, what it essentially did too, is it, it, it expanded the range for the Shasta ground sloth down this far in the Southwest. They're kind of known throughout the Southwest and this extended them into this portion of Texas. So as he explained it to me and he doesn't, he doesn't say that in the paper we just wrote, which might need clarification, but would he what he said to me that it is a South American animal originally and but this is the southernmost expression of a South American animal in North America, which is a little bit weird to wrap your head around.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And you guys didn't at least not yet, you guys haven't found any human evidence directly associated with the sloth or in this kind of range between like 30,000 and, and th- 10 to 11,000 years?
1: No, we haven't. No, it, that's, uh, and that's what's interesting for me is now that you know, for me, we know that there are deposits that are preserved in that cave that are the right age. And now I really haven't done much excavation there since, since since this. So the potential's there now, you know. The, mm-hmm. the deposit the right age deposits are there. So I don't know that there's gonna be any thirteen thousand year old human occupation of that cave, but certainly the right aged stuff is there. So it's it's a real good place to look.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's been interesting kind of talking with you just cuz we text randomly and be like hey i found this hey i found this um it's been fun to kind of live vicariously through you another thing that you had mentioned to me is that uh that you've found early, some really early evidence of maize it's i don't know if it's in the same cave or a different area but you're you're find also finding like yeah. really early evidence of maize in 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 these areas as well
1: yeah, so the, so my research focus at this cave, it's called Spirit Eye Cave. Uh, my research focus on it was to just radiocarbon date a bunch of stuff because it was looted so much. So as part of that, I wanted to get as many of the collections back as I could. And we can't dig them, but we I my focus is trying to reconstruct the occupation of the cave as best we can with just radiocarbon dates alone. So just taking all these perishables artifacts in the collection and putting it back together... And one of the original landowners had a box of corn from the cave and brought it back to me. And I gave, and I'd been finding a lot of corn in my stuff there too. And I got with some folks that specialize in studying maize and they picked out, you know, I had, I think I had 50 pieces. And I I told them, you know, I'm not going to date all 50 pieces, but if you can sort of go through this assemblage and pick out the five cobs that you think kind of typify the range of variation in this assemblage i'll date those and maybe we'll get a range of dates and you know we can go from there and so i dated all that maze that the collectors and i collected from the cave and i mean you look at them and just you know hold them to your hand and look at them they look like completely different types of maze and i thought you know this is getting you know this will give me this will give me maize use out here. It's probably going to be really late. And, you know, I'll get some research going on different types of maize and stuff. And mm-hmm. I sent away, and got the five dates, and statistically, they are the exact same radiocarbon date. I mean, they all are. All the exact same age, and they're about 2,100 cal BP, which is about 1,400 years earlier than any other maize that's been dated from the region. Wow. Yeah. And was, so all of a sudden, those village sites we were talking about earlier, those are supposed to be agriculturalists, and they're supposed to be, you know, post 80-1300. So all of a sudden, you have maize at you know 100 BC, and, and that's much different than maize post AD 1300. So obviously the next step was, okay, so these came from a collection. So that's, that's going to be a level of scrutiny that people are going to add to it, especially if you're going to push the maze data maize back in a region, you know, a thousand plus years.
0: Yeah. That's like a, that's a big jump in archeology. span
1: That, yeah. Yeah. That's not a, that's not an insignificant leap. <laughs> <laughs> so I started dating all of the maize that we had got, we, we had dug a lot of shelters and we have maize from them, but it's just had never been dated. So I started dating all of that. And about 2,100 cal BP is when the majority of dates come back now. So it's much easier to date a piece of late archaic maize from these shelters than it is a piece of when they're supposed to be actually doing
0: agriculture. So Interesting.
1: That's fascinating.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're calling it maize, so that's that suggests it's not it's not the wild wild cultigen that no. m- corn came from. No, it's it's, not. it's actually no, it's not domestic. Cente. It's yeah. actually a domesticated version.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. These are cobs. It's not teosinte. Yeah, they're. I mean, not big cobs, but they're cobs. It's maize.
0: Yeah, that's cool, man. That's that's super What's cool. Uh, interesting
1: is the late archaic cobs, yeah. The late they seem to be larger than the Puebloan ones, the late period stuff. So that's that that's bizarre.
0: Because that, the, the the theory is that you know as you intensify agriculture, your your crop yield should get bigger through time, just because you oh. should be getting better at it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would you would you would hope so
0: <laughs> you hope it doesn't come back smaller every year uh, or yield smaller every year
1: that is another
0: period just like you know ground sloth dung it's it's
1: it's not something that i'm super versed in and i can tell you now that the transition i am sure a lot of people know this everybody you know, archaeologists know this, but we just have this intense fascination with maize because of that. There has been an amazing amount of research on the domestication of maize. And I would say more than anything that I'm sort of dipping a toe into as, and my new general's career, maize is daunting. There is so much written. There's so much studied on it and it's, it's, something i avoided quite honestly because it's not something i ever really thought i would research but now that i'm in it it's especially the early use is pretty fascinating chapter of human history
0: yeah yeah and it, well and there it's the the amount of science and the amount of technology that's put to use on studying these maze things is, is super interesting you know they do like like you like you talked about like DNA with like slot dung, but don't they do kind of DNA with maize nowadays to kind of track how it changes through time?
1: Yeah. I'm working with uh, some researchers at the university of York and they're doing the DNA on the cobs out here in West Texas to see if it relates to the Pacific coast stuff or if it relates to Southwestern stuff. So there's kind of been two histories. There's been a, Use of it kind of going up the Sierra Madre Occidental into the Tucson Basin. And that's pretty definitively the earliest use as far as North America is concerned. But then there seems to be a second strain coming out of the, the Baja region. Wow. <laughs>
0: that's wild, man.
1: <laughs> so we're, we're in that... Uh, Kind of weird transition where it's not the earliest stuff by any means, but it's it's early, and it could either fit within those two thousand like, more Pacific focus kinds, or it could be some strain of southwestern stuff.
0: Wow, yeah, and I'm you know I'll have to say that I I think my knowledge of domestication and stuff is you know limited to Richard mm-hmm. Adams presentation on domestication and that kind of stuff um just cuz you know that's you know <laughs> going to CSU in Wyoming it's not something that is wholly important yeah. to studying hunter gatherers <laughs> it's not you know it's not tip top
1: it's really not but i mean what's interesting particularly about this is these guys aren't agriculturalists i mean they're just they're just not they're they're practicing low level food production and there's all sorts of interesting social implications that they're probably not producing enough for seed stock. So they have to maintain, they have to maintain contact with somebody that is producing enough surplus maize to actually have a stock of seed corn. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. And are they growing it as kind of a, like has been argued with the Fremont groups in the Utah region? Are they growing it kind of in like micro niches where they have this like ancillary cultivation strategy where if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, they're still all in on hunter gathering. And so it doesn't, it, it doesn't directly affect their foraging so much, but I mean, it's, what's really interesting down here is that, we don't really know. I mean, does it lead to something like it does in the Tucson Basin and uh, the Colorado Plateau, where you actually get groups that like start practicing, you know, pit house uh, use and sort of kind of become something that looks basket maker? It's 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 kind of a really interesting date to get back with all sorts of implications. And now that I have three sites that definitively have Late Archaic maize on it, which fit within what broadly in the the Southwest is called the early agricultural period. I don't know. That's there's all sorts of really interesting implications for that.
0: So there's so like you you had mentioned the Fremont and they're like these, these folks who are really, really well studied or, and uh, I won't say, maybe not really well understood, but they're, they're well researched and they're, they kind of have these identifying, yeah. um, like markers that can say, Hey, well, this is like, you know, we can guess this is Fremont or something like that. Is there some sort of group or culture or like a uh, set of artifacts in West Texas that resembles that? Or is there is it just not researched enough so you don't you don't know at this point?
1: No, because the maze always got lumped with anytime anybody found maze, they lumped it in with those late period sites that we were talking about earlier. So it's just, you know, that's like a post 80 1300 stuff thing. So nobody has really focused on that early use. So there's a completely untapped research potential. And it was thought to be pretty limited in distribution. And I mean, there's the three counties down here are essentially the size of Maryland. And there's been very little archaeology done in them and without just talking with people i know of 22 caves that have maize in them and that's just from people who are willing to talk with me off of a couple of different ranches so i think the use of early maize is way more prevalent down here and i think more than anything and this is total speculation but i know that you know maize going across the crest of the sierra madre occidental into the tucson basin is early but to me it seems like there should be another early wave going up the rio Conchos into the rio grande so it seems like water would be a much easier you know upriver ways would be a much easier way for the early spread of maize so i wouldn't be surprised uh that in the next two to three years that we're finding three or four thousand year old maize here hmm
0: so I, 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 love talking with you about this stuff cause you, you just, you get excited about it and I think you, you know, you really explain things well and I, you know, it's super cool to hear about, uh, a, a doc, a doctor in archeology span who's, who's, you know, ex- taking all these different ventures, um, and asking all these different questions. And I, I, you know, I really applaud you for, for taking that route. And I think it's been, it's been fun as a friend, um, to kind of hitch hitchhike f- around for the stories so it's <laughs> <laughs> i want to i want to yeah i super want to thank you um for you know coming and chat about me and i hope that you know this becomes something as you discover this horse thing that's going to happen you know the butchering of horse you know I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what your research has kind of and where it goes man me
1: too <laughs> <laughs> I'll gladly share it with you.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Brian. I just wanted to yeah, so this is a this is a bonus episode for the APN members. Um so you APN members, I really hope you enjoyed uh, this show. And I just interviewed Dr. Brian Shoder on this APN members only bonus episode. So stay weird, San Diego. <laughs>